Okay, good morning. How are we doing? What a beautiful bunch of people. You look half asleep. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to just quickly pray. I know it's hot in here. Lord, I want to pray that today we would hear your words. It would go deep in our hearts and it will bring about change. Just as we've just been singing about, we say, we love you. We love you. And we just pray that as we uh, look at Abraham, as we look at his life of faith, I pray that over these next four weeks, our own faith will be stirred and grow as a result of looking at your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? So it's my absolute privilege to be preaching today. And as Natalie said, we're kicking off our new preach series, which is going to run about four weeks, uh, looking at the life Uh, and the works of Abraham. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Jesus, so we're talking over 4,000 years ago. And uh, uh, we read a lot about him in the Old Testament, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 12 today. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, But you also read a lot about Abraham in the New Testament as well. And before I started to do a study on Abraham, if you asked me to sum Abraham's life up in one word, it probably would have been this word, faith. I don't know about you, but in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, it says that Abraham was a man who lived by faith. In other words, his life was characterized by faith. In Romans 4, he, Paul, the Apostle Paul goes further and says he's actually the father of our faith. In other words, he's the forerunner. He's the guy, it's actually his faith and his covenant with God, which means that we are all now accepted in God. He was the first, the first fruits. And over the next four weeks, as we learn all that we can from Abraham, not just his faith, not just his obedience, but actually sometimes his fear and his self-reliance. He was human, just like us. And I pray that that will stir our own faith, but it also give you better understanding of how his life impacts us today, how his covenant promises from God impact us today. But I feel we can't really go into a series on Abraham without knowing the history up to this point without giving you a little bit of a context of Abraham's life and what he is living in. Where does Abraham fit in into the timeline of history? So maybe this morning you're here and you're new, maybe you haven't been in a church context before, have no idea about biblical history uh, or any idea of the gospel narrative or God's big story. Well, I just want to, in two or three minutes, update you on what's happened so far in the story. What's happened so far? And we read, if you, if you get a Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says, everything that we see, everything that we experience and enjoy has been created as, as its source or is sustained by a creator God. It's amazing. But later in the Bible, in Ephesians 1, I think it's chapter, uh, verse 3 or verse 4, it says that even before that, even before God created the stars and everything else, he chose you. He has you in mind, you and me. That is every single person who professes Christ and says that he's their Lord and Saviour. Every believer, but even before he made the heavens and the earth, he chose and he loved you. It's amazing. Not through chance or luck, but you are here by choice, God's choice. And I think that significantly changes the way that we read creation story, doesn't it? It's not that God's been practicing for five days and by day six he's he's kind of got enough courage to really try something really great. Wow, we've made the human. 
No, actually, all of creation up to day six is creating an atmosphere and a place where we can thrive and have a relationship with the God that chose us before he even started. It's amazing. God made an environment perfectly suited to Adam before he provided a wife that was perfectly suited to Adam. Creation gives both glory to God, but also a place for us to flourish and enjoy. Now, why do that? When the Bible says that God is a God of relationship, he's a relational God. If, if you like, he's a covenant God, someone who loves unity and bonding and relationship. Just imagine for a minute the very first thing that Adam would have seen when God created him. What was the very first thing? Do you know what I think it would have been? It would have been as God was knelt down and breathed his life into his nostrils. You know, the first thing that Adam would have seen was face-to-face contact with a God who would then go on to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day, face-to-face relational experience. That's what God's desire was for us when he made us. And we even sing songs now, don't we, about that day when, like Adam, we will experience face-to-face relationship, deep, intimate relationship with him again. Wow. Amazing, but it's the way that it was always intended. But what happens? Well, Adam and Eve, after knowing and experiencing the blessing of God, they decide to become self-reliant. They choose to do things on their own. They choose actually to reject God and his blessings. And as the story goes on, we read between Genesis 3 and 11, that things just go from bad to worse for mankind bad to worse. The further they go away from God, the further they go away from his blessing. And after several generations, we get to this man, Abraham. And even after a flood, and even after the Tower of Babel, you can read that in Genesis, things in Abraham's day are as bad as ever. I want you to know that there is idol worship everywhere in Abraham's day. Actually, human sacrifice was well known within Abraham's day within a number of different religions. This is what Abraham was dealing with. One commentator I read, Kent Hughes, puts it like this. Ur, so the first slide please, Dan. Ur, which was the place where his family originated from, was desolate and barren of knowledge of the true gods. Ur's intrusive lunar religion dominated life from birth to the grave, During the ten generations from Noah through Shem to Abraham, the whole family of earth had played out its future and it had nowhere to go. The culture of Babel, though dispersed to triumph, there was no unforeseen able future other than darkness. And there was certainly no power, human power, to invent a future. Mankind was hopelessly lost except for the distant promise that a blessing would come. This is Abraham. God creates man in his image who wants relationship. Man goes his own way. Cue God and Abraham. So that's what's happened up to now. And then we meet this guy, Abraham, or Abraham as he's later called, I think it's in chapter 17. Now, Abraham is, uh, we know that he's a son of a man called Terah. And they've traveled as a family from Ur, so this place that I've just described, to a place called Haran. Right? So there's a quick map here. So on the bottom right there, you'll see Ur, where there's that temple. And they've got to basically travel from there all the way over to Cana, which is on the left-hand side. 
but they're not going to travel through the Syrian desert because that would be a silly thing to do. They could take the trade route and they go up through the fertile land and they settle at the very top of the map there, a place called Haran. And that is where we're picking up this picture, uh, this story now, okay? This passage in chapter 12. So that's the basis, that's the context of what we're looking at in this series and that's where we're going to start. We're going to look through this passage in quite a lot of detail. We're going to do the whole thing together and hopefully we'll earn a lot out of it as well. Okay, so chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Okay, so the first words we read here are, the Lord said to Abraham, all right, or the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the lands that I will show you. As we, as we begin to look at this passage, we need to remember that it is always initiated by God. The salvation story always has its start in God. We don't in any way have um, any indication that Abraham is on his knees at this point praying, saying, God, would you bring justice in this land which is so against you? No, God calls Abraham out. Has, it doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it in any way. It's God's grace on Abraham. That sounds similar, doesn't it? Sounds similar to your story and my story. God calls Abraham out. And what does he say? I've chosen you, but it's going to come at a cost. He says, leave your country and your kindred and your father's house. Notice there that when Abraham's counting the cost of going, the sentence, it seems to get more and more harder. Leave your people, leave your nation, your identity, Leave your people, leave almost like your community, your values, all those things that you've ever known. Even leave the people closest to you, your friends and your family, those that you are with and settled with. Leave, go. It's going to come at a cost. And you know, faith and obedience in God always will come at a cost. It always does. Always comes at a cost. And that cost will be different for all of us. We all have to count the cost of following Jesus. But for Abraham, the first thing it meant was leaving everything behind. Everything. And what for? To go to the land that I will show you. That's interesting, isn't it? At this point, Abraham doesn't even know where he's going. Have you ever been so indecisive? Me and Lou do this all the time. We think, where are we going to go today? Not sure. What should we do? I don't know. Let's get in the car and go. on the hope that somewhere, once we're driving, we'll have an idea on where we want to go. This is basically the level of faith that Abraham is being asked. Abraham's saying, well, God, do you want me to leave everything I know? Yeah. To, to go somewhere that you're not even telling me where I'm going? Yeah. It's big faith, isn't it? It's a big call. That's what God is asking Abraham to do. And I find that walking with God actually is so often like this. We don't often see the the end of the map, do we? We don't often see too far in front of where we're walking. Faith just calls us to be obedient to the call. To get up, often leave things behind and make sacrifices and follow God. Now what will be the result of his obedience? Well, God says blessing. So verse 2. And I will make you... A great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Why has this got Abraham's attention? Why, why has this made Abraham think, oh, now, now you've got me listening? Do you know why? It's because in the natural, Abraham and Sarah knew that they could never conceive a child. So to receive a blessing, to receive a promise that their child and their descendants will turn into a nation which will bless and inherit the world, well, that's completely impossible, isn't it? It's got his attention. And Abraham had faith in this God that he encountered. Now, the other thing about that verse that I find interesting is that God is demonstrating, he's showing Abraham from the very beginning how keen God is to bless the world. Did you notice that? I'm going to bless you, but I bless you in order that you will be a blessing to the nations, to the world. His blessing will result in a blessing to the world. And like Abraham, we are an incredibly blessed people, aren't we? Oh, three of us are. Hey, listen, you are blessed. We are an incredibly blessed people, are we not? But salvation was never meant to be that we just hold the blessing to ourselves. We are meant to be a blessing which blesses the people that you come in contact with. We are blessed, we hold, as Joe said, like the light of the world. Do you know what? You are the light of the world. Because you have Christ in you. You are the light of the world. You have an impact. You change darkness to light wherever you go. You carry the keys of blessing to unlock situations in the situations you find yourself. You are called to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Okay, let's go on. Verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him, right? This is faith is always followed by action. All right, faith is always followed by action. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took, his, took Sarai, okay, which basically later on her name's changed to Sarah. So we use those names, it might be easier. Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had to gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. All right, so if we just have a quick look at that map again, Dan. So basically you see that they went as a family with, with his dad. They went up to Haran, and now they're going to continue that journey. Although they don't know what the promised land is, they're going to go the natural route down the trade route through Canaan, down towards Egypt. So that's where they're going. Now, there's no indication from the text, if I'm honest, how long Abraham took to go, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of hesitation. It wasn't, oh, do I go? Do I not go? Is it God? Is it not God? It just says he packs his bag and he went. Now, reality, that could have taken a number of weeks. It may have even taken months to gather all the different things that they needed to, to do to do their travels. But he was obedient to the call. He heard God and he went. He takes his wife, nephew, and all their possessions and they go as God instructed them. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Sheshem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to this offspring, to your offspring, I will give this land. So this is the first time that Abraham knows what land has been promised to him. The very first time. He's been traveling all of this way, and this is the first time he knows what land is his. Excuse me. It's the first time. 
I just imagine, like, often with my kids when we go on a journey, they say, Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Could you imagine how difficult it must have been for Abraham when his people say, Abraham, are we there yet? And he's like, I just don't know. I don't know where we're going. This is the first time God says, this land before you, Abraham, this is going to be your promised land. This is the land that your descendants will inherit. And what I find interesting is that the land is already inhabited by the Canaanites. I've done a little bit of reading into the Canaanites. You know what? They just don't sound like a very nice group of people. (laughs) And it's interesting that when Abraham has this promise, he sees the land, but he sees it's inhabited actually by opposition. Opposition. Persecution in taking what God had promised him. And you know, often when God calls us to do something, when we walk in faith, do you know what? We have opposition. We have people that will persecute us. It kind of comes, literally, in Abraham's case, with the territory. Middle part of verse 7. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country onto the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on his west and Ai on his east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev, which is just slightly south again. There's two things I noticed about these two verses. Firstly, Abraham, he's a man of worship. He's a man of worship. It seems that everywhere he stops, he builds an altar to God and worships. And this, if you like, I think is this. It's Abraham making a statement. Although it's not mine yet, God has promised. And on that that basis, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to worship based on the promise of what God has said he will do. Now, we can learn from that, can't we? We can learn from that. I know that I can. When you don't see the breakthrough, when you don't see the way forward, when you don't even see God in a situation seems like you're completely alone, away from your nation, your community, your family, walking in a place that's not your own, persecution, opposition ahead. Can you do what Abraham does where he stops and he worships? He builds an altar and he says, God, I'm going to worship you. Reminds himself of the promise. Do you have the ability to worship like Abraham did, to proclaim the promises of God like Abraham because I find it fascinating that all throughout Abraham's life, he doesn't see a single promise come to pass at this point, And he still worships God. He still worships God. Kent Hughes says this, I love this. He says, how beautiful. The only architecture that remains from Abraham's life were altars. I love that. After he passed, what was his legacy? What was the only evidence that Abraham had been there? Altars of worship to God. Beautiful. The second thing I noticed from that passage, those two verses, is that it's almost as though he's going around the promised lands and building altars. It's almost like a prophetic statement of what is to come. One day there'll be a time where this nation is going to be worshipping the God Almighty. It's a prophetic statement. What faith, what an example. So let's just pause just for a moment. Highlight a few things that we've learned so far. Faith isn't just head knowledge. It's not head knowledge. It's knowledge mixed with confident action. So it's one thing to hear that I can fly a plane. It's a completely other thing to actually, with confidence, get in the plane with me in the pilot seat, which you should never do, by the way. 
It's not just understanding something, it's actually having faith, it's the, the, the willingness to be obedient and to step into it. The second thing we notice is believing God can and expecting God's will are two completely different things. Believing that God can and expecting him to are two very different perspectives when it comes to faith. Because remember, the only thing that Abraham has at this point to go on is God's promise. Now imagine for us, 4,000 years on, generation after generation will sing and declare his praise. God has always, from that day, been faithful to his promise. He has always been faithful to his promise. How much more for us can we have high expectations? You know, we must have high expectations, guys, when God promises something. Because he never breaks his promises. When we gather together as a people to worship God, we should have high expectations. Because God's promise is that he is here. And that he can do things. We need to have high expectations as a people. Thirdly, opposition and persecution comes with the territory. Fourthly, faith requires a trust and dependency on God, which is completely out of human reasoning. For Abraham and Sarah, there was absolutely no place in the natural for them to be able to have this happen. You know, with faith, it's because God is able to do what no man or situation on earth is able to do. And lastly, faith requires a trust and dependency on God that is completely out of human reasoning. I just said that one. Okay, so here we have Abraham, right? Obedient to God, leaves everything behind, goes to a place that he doesn't know and worships all the way. What a guy! Everyone else think, yeah? Good example. What a guy. Okay, let's go on to verse 10 and see what happens next. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his Sarah, his wife, he said, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Okay, this seems a little bit at odds of what we've read so far, doesn't it? It almost seems a bit like a, you know, kind of like one of these bad gear changes where you think, oh, that's, oh, that's not good. I find this so encouraging. I do. I find this so encouraging. I think this sometimes just is a picture of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Here we have a man given a promise who when walking towards that promise in obedience comes across two of what I think are the biggest challenges to our faith. The first one is fear and the second one is self-reliance. All right, Fear and self-reliance. And we see this all over this next bit of the passage. How shall I pass on my promise? How shall I pass on this seed and have a generation if I die in a famine? Fear. I know what I'll do. I'll just go to Egypt. Self-reliance. I'll, I'll sort it out. It's okay, God. I know you're in control, but I'll just help you out a little bit. I'm going to go down here. How would God's purposes be met in the world if I get murdered on the basis of my wife? Hey, Sarah, I've got an idea. Why don't you just lie? Why don't you just say you're my sister and then God's promises will still come out and be fulfilled? Let's just help him out a little bit. Fear self-reliance. You see, Abraham, we know that Abraham has no problem in believing God for the impossible. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there, would he? 
We know that. But when fear comes in, we can lose sight of God and end up trying to do things on our own. It's not that faith isn't evident, but when fear creeps in, actually your sights go from God and go onto yourself. So let's just very quickly pick up on these two, um, two, two blockages. Fear comes in all shapes and sizes and it will be different for each and every one of us. What will they say? What if they're not healed? I don't know what it is for you. I'm, I'm not able to speak up. I'm no one. What if I get beaten up? What happens if I lose my job? Fear for you might look completely different. But you know what? This is the difference between fear and faith. Fear is faith rooted in something. True faith is trust rooted in someone. Do you get the difference? Abraham went from trusting the someone who is able to the things that might happen. What happens if I starve? What happens if I die? What if fear is faith rooted in something? True faith in God is trust on God and his promises. It's on the person. Faith is stirred on the person. And this is where Abraham and also we can go so wrong. His faith wasn't based on things. It was based on God, the person. And his faith is based on the ability of God to fulfill those promises. Do you notice that? As soon as he takes his eye off God, the person who is able to fulfill the promise, what does he do? I'll try and fulfill it myself. I'll go over here and I'll do these things. He's taking his eye off God. Fear says, what will people say? Faith says, God is so pleased when I'm obedient to him. Fear says, I just can't do that in God. Faith says, you can do all things in Christ. It gives you strength. See the difference? Fear says that I need to even perform this morning for you guys. Faith says, God accepts me before even a word came out of my mouth today. It's the difference in fear and faith. Fear is, I need to be in control of this situation. Faith for Abraham would have been, God, you are in control of this situation. You call into being the promises that he's given. And fear is always an indicator of what we truly believe. I I honestly believe that. Does God love me? Can I trust him? Is he really in control? I remember stories that uh, the disciples in the boat with Jesus. It's interesting, when they think that they're going to die, what's the one thing they ask Jesus? They don't doubt his ability, do they? They say, do you not care? that we perish. Is that interesting, isn't it? Out of all the things they could have said, is it, no, do you not care? Fear always brings those kind of things into our hearts. It's always an indicator of what you truly believe. Does God care for me? Does he love me? Can I trust him? Is he really in control? And in most cases, fear can lead to this second barrier, which we see in Abraham's life here in this passage, is self-reliance. I believe that God's in control. I'm just going to help him out a little bit. We can all do that. You see, if you forget God's promises and you forget whose job it is to fulfill those promises. Faith is a response of the promises of God. We grow in faith by getting to know God's promises, not by trying to have more faith. I've seen people trying to muster up faith as though they're kind of limbering up for a marathon. Need to go over the road and get a suppository. It's kind of like, oh, I'm just trying to get more faith. If you want more faith, you need to look at the promises of God. 
You need to say what it is that God has said he will do. And if you want to raise your faith further, you, you call those things into being and say, God, you said, you said that I was going to be a nation, that we were going to come into the promised land. Well, we've got a famine. What are you going to do about it? Because you said. That's what faith is. That's where faith comes up from. But Abraham did what we so often do, which is we try and fix it. We take it on ourselves to make sure God's promises come about. So let's just lastly quickly read what happens then when Abraham brings his great plan. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians, as he thought, saw that the woman was very beautiful. But I'm sure he didn't count on this. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Oh, brilliant. Well, that backfired, didn't it? His wife's been promoted to the palace and his entertainment to one of the most richest, most powerful, most dangerous people on the planet. What are you going to do about it? Verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Okay, so we have a bit of a situation here now. Abraham has somehow ended up in the wrong house, in the wrong nation, with his wife, with the wrong man, and God steps in. Do you know what? I find that often when I do things in my own way, when I'm self-reliant, I often find myself deviating away from the path that God has called me to. And this is the case of Abraham, and God now needs to try and bring him back on the same path. So what does God do? I also noticed this that's just come to mind. This is the first time in the second part of this passage that we've even heard God, isn't it? There's even any reference to God. For the whole of that first section when he's going to the promised land, God does all the talking, doesn't he? God talks, Abraham follows. This second bit, since when they go into Egypt, this is the first time that we even have any reference to God at all. It's almost as though Abraham has totally ignored what God is about and what he's doing. the first time we ever hear him well what does he say but the lord afflicted pharaoh and his house with a great plague because of sarah abraham's wife so this is likely to be some kind of form of skin complaint or boils and likelihood is that sarah there's nothing on sarah at all so they know something's awry and they kind of investigate and this is what the pharaoh says pharaoh called abraham and said what is this you have done to me why did you not tell me that she was your wife why did you say she is my sister So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning them, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You see, Abraham's deception here almost makes the Pharaoh look like quite a good guy. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew, he literally says four words Here, wife, take, go. (laughs) It's quite abrupt, isn't it? Pharaoh's not happy about it, but that's what they do. They take all their belongings and their possessions and they head back towards the promised land. Head back on the path that God had called him to walk. And you know what? I would love to say that this is the only time this happens. If you know the story of Abraham, you'll know that he'll do exactly the same thing again with another king. I find that quite comforting. I find it quite comforting to know that I'm not the only one that can crunch through the gears not the only one that can be fearful, that I can be the, I'm not the only one that actually can be self-reliant and choose to take God's promises as my own and then try and work them out in my own way. I find that really comforting.
So just to round up, what does that teach us when it comes to walking in faith? Walking towards the promises that God has for us. You know, we need to always remember and keep in mind the promises of God. We need to keep reminding ourselves of what it is that God has said he will do. That's why we're here, isn't it? That's why we're doing what we're doing is because God has said. If we forget that, we're going to end up doing all kind of crazy things that we shouldn't be doing. We need to keep God in mind. We need to trust and believe in his promises. The second thing I find is this. We need to remember that God is always a promise keeper. Because the enemy would love to just bring doubts in and say, oh, but I know God said that, but does he really mean that? That's one of the reasons why Adam and Eve went wrong in the garden in the first place, is because they believed the deception with, I know he said that, but did he really, really mean it? The devil's ploy today will be exactly the same. Oh, God's promised this, but did he really mean it? Or did he really mean this? Thirdly, our faith is based on his faithfulness to finish whatever he started. God says that he will finish what he started. There's a lovely, um, a lovely quote, I can't remember who said it. He basically said, uh, faith and faithfulness are the uh, adverse or the reverse of the same coin. It's only because God is faithful that we can have faith. Or similarly, our faith only makes sense because God is always faithful. That's where our faith comes from, is the promises of God. And lastly, God's plans done God's way never lack God's provision. You need to know that when God has called you to do something, he will provide for you all the way. It might not always look the way that you expect. It might not necessarily come in the timing you expect, but God's provision, you know, God is building his church. God's provision will come. In your life, the promises that you have from God, that you say, God, I've been praying and I've been calling out for this. Keep calling on his promises. And him who has started it, it says in the Bible, he is faithful to bring it to completion in you. Amen? Amen. Why don't you just stand with me as we bring this to a close? I think there might be people here that aren't Christians today. In fact, I know that there will be. And maybe you didn't realise that you were created to be in a relationship with God, as I started with. You didn't realise, actually, the reason that you love relationship, the reason that you're, you're crying out for intimacy is because that's the way that God made you. And he made you for God. And I'd love to give you the opportunity today, if you just want to find out more, I'd love for you to come and talk to me and just say, you know, I'm really interested in what you said about relationship and about God wanting a relationship with me. I'd love to just come and talk to you. You come to the front. I'd love to do that. For those of us that are in a relationship with God, I feel like we just need to remind ourselves and call into being the faithfulness of God and the promises to which he's called us. We need to remind ourselves of his faithfulness, and it's that that will cause our faith to rise. It's, it's bringing into mind the faithfulness of God that will cause our faith to rise. And for some of us, you may even need to say sorry for doing things in your own strength. You may look back over the last coming weeks or months or even years and say, actually, I think what I've done is a bit of a gear crunch there. I've I've pulled an Abraham and I've actually ended up trying to do things my own way, even with good intentions. And I think today would be a good opportunity if you say, God, I'm so sorry that I've believed the promise, but I've tried to fulfill it in my own strength, not in your strength. So just where you are, I'm just going to give two minutes just for you to respond in whatever way you want to. 
So you can just respond to God and just say, God, would you come? Would you speak to me? Sorry that I've done things in the way that I shouldn't have done. Pray, God, would you increase my faith for the things that you've asked me to believe in? Whatever it is, I'm just going to give one minute for you to do that, and then I'm going to finish us in prayer. Just take a minute to do that now.